Hello and welcome to High Shelf Gaming Podcast. I'm the host, David Gillespie. Every week, I'm joined by my co-host, Rich Wisneski, and we bring on guests to talk about role-playing games and board games and gaming conventions. If this is up your alley, feel free to download, listen, subscribe, and please rate us on iTunes. It really helps people find us. You can also connect with us on Twitter, at High Shelf Gaming, and join our Facebook group, High Shelf Gaming Podcast. It's a closed group, but click to join. We're friendly to everybody, and we'll get you added in. We also have a Discord server to talk games with us all you like. Hey everyone, this is David Gillespie again, and as always, I'm joined by the inconceivable Rich Wisneski. That is inconceivable, David! I, um, you know what's really great about this? It's inconceivable I'm on this show with so many talented people today. I we- feel like just a little neonate Rich here, and I, I think we're going to meet some really talented folks and have a, a great conversation. Yeah, I am super pumped about today's episode. So today we have with us some some very talented and and seasoned artists in the gaming space. Um, Crystal Soli, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. And um, real quick, Crystal, could you kind of give a sense for the audience, like what got got you into you know artistry, drawing and painting, and and how did that get, did that get you into gaming or were you a gamer first, artist first? Like how did, how did these two things come together for you to be a, an artist in the gaming space? You know, it's kind of funny is um, I am really new to the tabletop gaming field as far as playing is concerned, but that's the industry I've been working in professionally for about six years, along with the video game industry. And while I'm a huge gamer in the, the video game sense, I'm brand new to uh, D&D and a huge Critical Role fan, so I'm just getting my toes wet as far as playing is concerned. That's awesome. Oh, this is co- that's so cool. Uh, and also joining us today is Jabari from jmwillustration.com. Jabari, welcome so much to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, definitely. And likewise, uh, kind of give us a sense of your gamer background or, or maybe what got you into artistry and, and how those two kind of come together for you. Because... On this show, we talked to a lot of interesting people. Everyone's got such different backgrounds and how they got into this. So I'm I'm dying to hear how you got in. Yeah. So I've been I've been drawing forever, and like that kind of dovetailed really oddly uh, with gaming because my mom actually used to play a lot of pen and paper games. You know, bought the manuals and stuff. I didn't really have anyone to play the game with until high school, um, and that's when I started really like doing a deep dive when I was doing undergrad at Micah. Uh, I helped run the guild during my time there, which is the like pen and paper gaming club that was at Micah. And like, I just kept taking that more and more seriously. Eventually built my thesis around the hypothetical RPG. And, and, and for the folks that are not initiated, what is Micah? Uh, Maryland Institute College of Art. Thank you. Yeah. And so, yeah, um, it just kind of continued that deep dive and didn't really turn away from it after graduating started like really putting out feelers and reaching out to people for illustration and like indie pen and paper RPGs. And now I'm here. That's great. That's, that's so cool. And okay. So we can go in a lot of different places. I think it makes sense to start with how we got to know the two of you 
And really, it all generates, or the genesis of all this really started with Gen Con 2018 this year. You ran into one of our kind of ardent community members, Heather. Super special. Yes, at the <laughs> at the Critical Role booth. And uh, she, she did you guys a bit of a favor. We talked about it on our show that really kind of incentivized us to reach out to you guys and thanks and, um, and got us all together. But uh, what, what, I guess what made that moment happen? What brought you to Gen Con and, and, and how did all that, that come together for you? So it's funny cause I've, I've listened to the, the last episode, uh, cause Heather posted it on her Twitter and, and I was like, oh man, she's so like downplaying how awesome she really was for us. <laughs> because, uh, you know, she's being all bashful and humble, but <laughs> she is quite humble. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a definite character trait. No, we, uh, so I was, I had an art show table this year for Gen Con 2018, which is always a huge honor because it's this heavily juried show. Um, so I got to be there my second year in a row and business was absolutely booming, which was incredible. And my booth neighbor and I, Christina Carroll, we were so swamped. We got pretty much like one break a day to pretty much do everything we wanted to do. So food, shopping, and we got wind that there was a critical role booth at Gen Con. So we both flipped out like Crystal, we have to go there and we have to do it on Thursday because you know, all the good stuff's going to get sold out. Oh yeah. We run away from our tables. I mean, we are like, you know, ducking and weaving through the crowd trying to get there and and we get there in line and the line was not terrible, but it was quite a line. So 40 minutes later, we get up to the front and uh, Christina turns to me and she goes, oh my God, Crystal, it's no cash allowed. It's only debit cards. And I was like, but I have my cash that I just made today from my art. No, like this is, this is horrible. And we were sitting there kind of panicking. And as we kind of slump our shoulders and we start to walk away, this wonderful woman behind us goes... Um, no, I've got you guys covered. I will totally pay for this. Just pay me back in cash. It's fine. Like no hesitation, just reached out for us. And, you know, to her, you know, as she mentioned in the show, it was just kind of like a, yeah, I was just doing what I do. Just, just helping someone out. But for us during our one break that we had, I mean, you know, it's, it's very much business for us, these, these big shows and to have a booth like critical role there for something we both love so much. It meant the world that she was able to, you know, not only help us get these shirts, but make us not have to go back, you know, try to go again tomorrow when probably everything would have been sold out. So Heather kind of saved the day for us. Um, So I went back on Twitter because we kind of, you know, got rushed away to get back to our booth and we didn't get her name or her Twitter handle or anything. And we were talking about it. And Christina and I were like, we need to pay her back. We really need to like really do something nice for her because this this woman made our entire weekend like something amazingly fun so i reached out on twitter i started this huge campaign hashtagged all the critical role community um briefly said what happened and said guys let's find this critter get her to our table let's do this let's get her some art prints and it it went viral. I mean, it got shared everywhere. And Heather would later tell me a bunch of her friends retweeted it, but she somehow magically didn't see it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then Sunday rolls around, last day of the show, and guess who happens to just casually walk up? Like, oh, hey, look, I found you guys. Like, she had no idea that we had been like hunting for her pretty viciously throughout the weekend. Like, asking other critters, like, do you know this person? Here's what she looks like. She was wearing the Scanlon shirt. Like, we've got to get her over here. <laughs> So we hooked her up with a bunch of prints, took a bunch of pictures, and uh, became fast friends. The rest that's, is history. That is so cool. That's such a neat <laughs> moment. And and I think that Gen Con really has a lot of that that kind of stuff going on where people are looking out for each other. They're trying to make sure that everybody around them is having a great time. 
And I just, I just love that it was Heather there right behind you guys. And, and she's absolutely the type of person to immediately lend a helping hand to, you know, a fellow, a fellow fan. Oh yeah. It was, it was incredible. And, you know, like I said, for her, she was like, Oh, it's just helping someone out. No big deal. But that seriously meant so much to us because that I don't think we had a chance to get back to the critical role booth until Sunday, right before they closed. So um, that was a big deal for us for sure. Hey, by the way, next year at your booth, when you need some support, just call Dave. He'll be there. He'll work the booth. I'll come by and tell people why. It's all about the art and charge twice as much. Con is such an overwhelming experience. And it's awesome that everyone's so friendly. <laughs> because Oh yeah. Um, there were there were tons of little moments like that of just like meeting extremely cool people to the point where I was overwhelmed. The way that the way that I ended up actually going to Gen Con as well was uh crystal you were you and trevor were actually kind enough to <laughs> let me room there um which was really fortuitous like i was hoping to be able to hang out with artists um but i wasn't going i wasn't attending as an artist it was my first year going uh and i was actually gming four games for magpie for magpie games and oh that's neat that is so cool and you're okay you're touching on something that we have talked a lot about on the show and that is, if you don't have housing sorted out, you can't go because there's no place to stay if you don't have a room to hang out in and and people to to either either you're on spot and getting a room or you've got somebody loaning you a room. I, I can't imagine going any other way. Oh, yeah. And I think on the art show side of things, too, we have a specific block that they reserve for us so that the exhibitors, you know, we can for sure have a room kind of guaranteed as long as we nab it in time. So I haven't been on that side of things. Like we are always pretty much guaranteed a room if we have an art show booth. Thank goodness, because all my attendee friends who go have just told me horror stories of trying to get into the the block because there's so many people who want to go. So when Jabari reached out to me and you know, said, Hey, I actually really want to go to Gen Con. We just happened to reserve a like two room suite at embassy suites from a friend. And we were like, yes, we need roommates. This is really expensive. (laughs) (laughs) And that worked out really nice. We had so much fun. We were all up till, Oh my goodness. How late? Just like geeking out about, you know, the games we got to see that day and the people we talked to and just the whole thing. Oh, that's, that's glorious. That's really, really cool. Okay, so I, you're kind of giving me a hint here, Jabari, that you game quite a bit and are a professional artist. How do you do both in this space? I've tried really hard to tie them together, <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess. is, And I, I, I don't know the wisdom of, of such a thing, but I, I care a lot about doing illustration and also um, about role-playing games as a specific medium of entertainment. And so... I'd say it's a pretty even ratio because I've, I've been wanting to step into like game design more more frequently and more professionally with the same capacity as doing, doing artwork for games. And I've been trying to get to Gen Con forever. Uh, so this year was kind of a godsend in how everything had tied together. I guess the way that things have been weaving together this year in particular has been really organic. Two years ago, Marissa Kelly, actually, who's one of the wonderful folks that run Magpie Games, she actually reached out to me to make a tarot deck for 7C. And then last year, she and Mark Truman also reached out to me to make a deck for Bluebeard's Bride um, for Magpie Games. And so they, between those 
two jobs on the illustration side. I got really involved in like what was happening with the game design of Bluebeard's Bride and had like a lot of questions for that. Um, and that eventually led to, I guess, like all the com conversation between that and like kind of like keeping my pulse on the other designers that were engaging with those projects. Um, I eventually became privy to like when Magpie was looking for GMs for Gen Con and was like, I, I absolutely want to run something. Yeah, yeah of <laughs> so, course. So I ended up getting tapped to to run four games of Velvet Glove, which is Sarah Richardson's next game. She was one of the designers on Bluebeard's Bride. And it's it's an extremely charged game because you <laughs> the the players are essentially they're playing teenagers from like marginalized communities in the 70s. Oh who, wow. Specifically teenage girls who are like their support group is their support system is essentially this gang that they form with these other girls. So running that game at Gen Con was <laughs> such a such a bizarre experience. It was amazing, but but sort of exhausting and I, I can yeah. only I can only imagine. I mean, when you say their only support group was this gang, immediately my my mind goes, oh, it's an adventuring troupe, because it's not like they can rely on other people. They have to roll together and you know solve problems together without the help of any outside party, uh, you know that kind of thing. So I can definitely see there's that initial thread, that initial similarity, but I'm sure that it gets much more intense in that specific game. Um, than say your standard uh, dungeon crawl or something along those lines. Absolutely, one of one of the things that was really exciting coming to Gen Con was seeking out a lot of people that are making very strange and like charged games and pulling from experiences that I guess are really atypical of what you'd expect to be in role playing games. Even though there are so many different types of games and stories to tell. And around here, we started having some technical difficulties. I couldn't hear the guests, but the guests could hear each other. It was really frustrating. So we switched to a different platform and tried to kind of pick the conversation up where we left off. And so away we go. Yeah. Velvet Glove. Velvet Glove. Um, that's right. So yeah, it's, it's Sarah Richardson's next game, Dirt Bluebeard's Bride. And it's very, very different from D&D in tone far grittier um, and its concerns are far far more grounded since everyone that you're playing is a a teenager probably a teenage girl specifically probably from a marginalized community in the 70s and it's an intense ride for sure um so i okay i have a, a really straightforward question on this game absolutely as someone who's not from the 70s and not from a marginalized community how can I get into that game and play it? Because it sounds interesting. Um, I mean, so so the, the version of the game, I guess there's a few different ways that I can answer it. One is definitely just like the game has a decent amount of guidance for the GM uh, in order to like tap into the conversations that the game is trying to have. And the systems in the game, um, especially for the players, like really put you into the cycles and mindset that um, the subject matter is asking of you um, in terms of its exploration of uh, like 
gender power dynamics and like age dynamics as well. Um, so honestly, I think there, there's also a good amount of um, references to like seventies exploitation films and revenge films. Ah, um, yes. Okay. Yeah. We so love talking about movies here. So what are some of the movies that they reference? So uh, Switchblade Sisters is like top of the list. Um, when, when like going through the the various like media markers, also like Faster Pussy, uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Um, one of the ones that I kind of was turning to a lot was The Warriors, just for some of the shenanigans, but that doesn't have the particular like gendered angle. Of course. Interesting. No, this has that beautiful warriors come out and play. That was definitely a unique movie. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. And so, okay, good stuff. Uh, and, and so when you got there, you were there really to GM for that game, but you've, you probably brought some of your own work with you, right? Some of your own illustrations and that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I was definitely walking around the halls, <laughs> meeting a lot of people and talking talking art um and also talking about some of the other game design work that i was stepping into and like kind of dipping my toe into yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and and okay so so you've been doing this for quite some time crystal i, I kind of got the sense that you are just now getting into maybe playing and even gming or uh what's um, you kind of said earlier on that, that you started off primarily in the artistry side and, and participating in the industry on that, on that front, but just now you're really getting into being a GM and that sort of thing. Is that right? Yeah. So it's kind of funny how Jabari and I are kind of on the opposite end of that, where I'm kind of just now, you know, I have the DM guide, I have the player's handbook, uh, D&D 5e is kind of where I've found a lot of fun, where we're kind of learning that right now. And it this all stemmed because I've been doing these conventions for about as long as I've been working on popular titles, like like the Pathfinder series. I've got a lot of work done for that. And Starfinder, you know, we have like pretty much anything Fantasy Flight games made, Call of Cthulhu, Lord of the Rings, uh, Fury of Dracula, Talisman, all that stuff. And they have some cool, you know, parts in the contract where I can sell some of the work I've done. So I'd be selling my work at these conventions and a lot of the attendees would be like, oh, well, that's cool. But what class do you play? And I would just be like, uh, uh, <laughs> oh, crap, what do I say? <laughs> like, Because I didn't, I didn't play any of the games. I was always into first person shooters, a lot of PC games, um, single player RPGs, but never like tabletop games. Growing up, I didn't really have anyone to play with. I feel like that's kind of key, you know, when it comes to like a good D&D game. But my friends got me really hooked on Critical Role. So I've listened to like almost every episode of that, catching up on season one now. But since I'm painting all day for, you know, 10, 12 hour days, it's perfect to put that on in the background. And Critical Role served oh. as that that connection for me where I was watching that. And I was like, this is not that hard though like this looks amazing this yeah. is so much fun and i'm a storyteller at heart it's it's what got me into painting every every piece should tell some kind of cool story and i love the fantasy genre dragons and you know like knights and and mages and warlocks and wizards so it's it just kind of clicked and just this year um you know we just picked up player's handbook 
we, my husband and I have been making some new characters and I'm going to be a DM. We're going to be running a nautical campaign over the seas uh, for D&D 5e. And my poor players are terrified because, you know, you, can, you guys can see on my website, my newest painting I just finished up is this like mid 17th century warship galleon with this massive leviathan like busting up out of the water about to just devour it. And all my players are just kind of like, nope, nope, I'm not playing under you. I quit. I'm not doing this. <laughs> I'm so glad. They should be pleased. <laughs> should be- oh, yeah. Okay. If, if I was a player in your game and you had amazing art to to even illustrate any aspect of the game, I just I would just keep showing up. I don't care how many characters I lose. <laughs> I will keep showing up to see this art come out. And it's like, that thing killed me. You know, I, well, that's that's good to hear because I specialize in monsters. Uh, you know, a lot of my friends do like the character art for Pathfinder, but I was the person they would contact when they were like, "Okay, we're doing the Crimson Throne, we're doing all the Eldritch Horror stuff. We have tentacle monsters, and no one else wants to paint them." Oh wow! <laughs> no. other, other people, sure would, I'm sure, but it's kind of the standing joke. Like I, I get to do all the really creepy, just everything that eats everyone's characters. That's that's pretty much what I do. So. That's awesome. Like the monster, the, the monster art in Pathfinder in general is very high bar. And so good on you for tackling that and, and doing such an excellent job of representing monsters. Cause I think that one of the, as a DM, this is okay. I have, if, if this, I have to thank you and everyone who's taken your position in the industry, because as a DM, when you really want to freak out your players, you show them the monster. Right. Because they're like, oh, it had teeth and claws and, you know, maybe a, a squiggly bit or or some sort of like, uh, you know, some sort of like pseudopod situation. But when they actually get to see it, it really sinks home just how perilous their character situation is. So great monster art has aided myself and thousands or millions even of DMs all across the world. And uh, thank you so much for doing that. You're welcome. That that always means a lot to hear because, you know, I'm not bringing to life someone's character that they spent a lot of time crafting. I bring to life the thing that sometimes unfortunately kills those characters. And, uh, you know, like I said, we do a lot of major comic cons and I would say my fan base and my customers are primarily DMs. In fact, we have a painting on my side of this massive hulking dragon kind of looming up above this party, like five characters. And we call that the DM's favorite. Mm-hmm. Love it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yes. <laughs> it, I imagine. Do you, do you get uh, commissions along those lines like a DM? Com- like the commissions that you get if you take commissions, are they from DMs primarily wanting to paint a certain scene with a given monster? Usually, yeah, actually, you're, you're nail on the head there. <laughs> a lot of the commissioners I, I do take, I'm usually kept pretty busy between my own book, which is all monsters, and then, you know, a lot of the client work I do, but the commissions I do take are pretty much DMs so, needing something to terrify their players. <laughs> so wait, what, what, what book are you working on? Uh, so my own book that actually just hit Kickstarter last year, last fall, is called The Untamed Bestiary, A Field Guide to Marvelous Monsters. Because I've been doing so much client work for all these amazing companies, I wanted to put it all in one place and do about 30 or 40 creatures that are just my own, just for my own project. So uh, that funded at about a thousand percent, which was completely mind blowing. We Heck weren't yeah. expecting that. <laughs> and yeah, it's been fun. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so it's it's out now. People can pick it up. 
So it's for pre-order now. We're aiming to have it finished up by the end of the year. I'm really excited. And uh, fantasy author Christopher Paolini, author of the Aragon books, he's actually writing my foreword, which is a huge honor. So I'm kind of like blown away. Wow. Which game are you statting those creatures for? Uh, right now, we're basing it off of D&D 5th edition. Sweet. So um, we will see if we branch out from there, uh, depending on, you know, what our, what our, our, we have like 1300 Kickstarter backers. So, you know, we'll probably run a poll, like, do you guys have any other systems that, you know, we want to do? And what's really cool is I actually got to meet up with some of my stat book team out at Gen Con. So I did a lot of art for another role-playing game that was on Kickstarter a couple of years ago called Open Legend RPG. Um, ton of their artwork, all the creatures and stuff. And uh, a lot of their team that did their stats and created that book are actually on our team for getting our stats done. So we have some really good good talent uh, to help me because I'm so new to you know the tabletop world and D and D as a player and a DM. Coming up with the stats for all these and getting that exactly right has been a bit challenging. Right, so very much a balancing act. We've talked about that with uh, another designer. It. Uh, you know, I, I think you just have to have this whole world of little tables in your head because you always have to keep double checking against yourself almost. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we originally intended to do it ourselves, but um, we have a couple close friends who are going to be working on that. And then, you know, this team who worked on Open Legend and I just I'm excited yeah. going to the pros for this one for sure. So, yeah. And, and really, you're getting away. You're getting into game design at that point because you're. You're designing something to fit into a game. It's supposed to be balanced against the other aspects of that game at, you know, equivalent power levels and that kind of thing. I, I guess, Jabari, at this stage, you've probably had a lot of experience on game design uh, already. Mm-hmm. When you were putting together an asset for a game or a game entirely, what are some of the considerations that you that you go through? I guess there's there's two different sides to this, because like when I'm designing a game from the ground up, I try to hone in on like a theme or an emotion. Uh-huh. That feels good, and then build a system from ground up that feels appropriate for that, and figure out a mechanic of resolution that feels like a good encapsulation of that theme or feeling. But when I'm when I'm making things for a game, it's that's already existing. It's usually stepping to what's already established there. I'm co-gming a five E game with my partner. <laughs> we we built up this like really gonzo setting, <laughs> um, and. <laughs> that's run by witches and is implied to maybe be made of paper. And <laughs> there's, yes. I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of like really crazy things that are happening there, but we, we kind of like looked for particular questions that we were interested in, in answering. So I, I try not to get with 5e, I try not to get too tripped up with particular stat blocks. And we try to figure out like, what are the cool things that we're going to throw at people? There's probably already a resource there for it so we're going to focus on like all of the weird politics of this world and like the texture of it and, right um, does that mean you go to open source based systems or is it just look through the textbooks you already have and and you know pick and pull i i go to systems that are less concerned with stat blocks altogether i guess or oh, yeah really deprioritize that a significant amount and have like really interesting table dynamics so um like that's that was what was attractive to me for bluebeard's bride there isn't a specific guide for like how much how many hit points like a particular servant has if they're being horrifying to the bride uh, <laughs> but but the specific thing that's interesting there is like the conversation that's unspooling between the players whenever i'm running games i'm really interested in like pulling on the the players emotions a lot more 
but like game design that's like a whole different thing because like the game that i've been prioritizing for the past few months is called a dire situation it's essentially like it's a gmless game that's meant for one shots i yes. kind of just call it like the the dangerous liaisons rpg and it's an epistolary role-playing game so you have a bunch of people sitting in a circle writing letters to each other and their <laughs> characters are trying to ruin each other um, <laughs> where are we gonna play that at gen con wait i was trying time. so hard yeah everyone's so busy at gen con, <laughs> at gen con that it's hard to get people together but Mm. Rest assured, I'm planning on bringing it to some of the other cons that I'm going to. Hopefully, I can get a playthrough to happen at AlexCon. I'm trying to remember. We had like seven or eight people in our room, and I was thinking this would be so much fun, but also so much chaos. Yeah, that would have been that would have been like the the player cap as well. And it's ah, mm. uh, it's such a weird thing. Like the I guess like the design for that game spiraled out of the um the feeling that you get either when you were reading something that you were not supposed to be or the feeling of knowing a lot of people are watching you read things that are secret and knowing that they're curious about whatever you're like, whatever secrets you're privy to. <laughs> that is awesome. That's, that's kind of how I approach game design. Like I, I look for a really specific feeling like that or a set of feelings. And then I think to myself, like, What's the interesting like conversation that can like, that can unspool from that? What feels significant about that kind of interaction? And I try to design around that. <laughs> I've been hearing this desire around evoking something from players or your your group that you're running for, or or even the you know the art that you're making in in the monster books and that kind of thing. It really seems like goal one is to get maybe a visceral emotional reaction from a, from another person. Is that, is that fair to say? Totally. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels good to have that visceral reaction. And I think that games are such an effective empathy maker. Yes, absolutely. Cause if, if I go back to uh, crystal's artwork about the dragon over the, uh, over the players, everyone can empathize with that moment. <laughs> <laughs> and I hear that a lot at all the conventions we do so it's it's kind of fun i i have this like this rule when i i sit down to make a new piece or a new monster just for me or you know even for games is it should do one of two things that are the reactions i like to get either it's so darn cute that everyone just goes oh and they laugh at it so i either want laughter or i want fear i want someone to be like oh my gosh you made all the little hairs on my arm stand up thanks for that <laughs> yes that is always the best moment when all the players like look a little wide eyed and you can tell they're gauging should they run. <laughs> and this is why I, I totally want to uh, want to, you know, take that step and become a DM. It's I've, I've heard it, it would suit me pretty well. And I love getting that reaction from people, it's especially the fear one. I think my portfolio is a little, little biased towards, you know, the really creepy stuff. Like uh, my favorite Pathfinder piece I did is was actually their opener for, I want to say it was called the Threshmore Terror of the Crimson Throne kind of eldritch horror campaigns that they did. And they had me first concept um, Mordigian, the great old one, which is, you know, an old Lovecraft monster from 
whenever he wrote that one. So I concepted the creature and then I got to put it chasing their fighter and their alchemist, like running scared, like little children. And just, you know, the amount of people who come up and they just go like, oh man, that freaks me out. Like they rub their arms like, oh, I got the chills. It's just, it's perfect. And really Lovecraft is so good at that. The episode we released last week was all about HP Lovecraft and one of the new pandemic games that references it. And all of his stuff around, you know, fear of the unknown and all of that stuff, just evoking so much terror in people. You can definitely get a lot of mileage out of that in a game. Oh, definitely. And it makes me happy that we get to see some of Lovecraft's creatures in modern day games. So people kind of have a different way to enjoy him instead of having to, you know, necessarily go read his books because there were definitely some problematic things with his writing. So Mm. it's. It's nice to be able to enjoy that in like modern day games in the form of like the monsters that he created and, and kind of just that. So I really liked working on that stuff. Oh, hey, th- okay. So you're you're bringing up something that I think is a cool thing to, for us to talk about. Um, maybe Jabari, we'll start with you. What role do you think games like D&D or, or other role playing games have in modernizing our view of past works like reimagining some of Lovecraft's themes without having to go back and read some of his writings and and deal with some of that. What role does, does gaming have in that space? It's interesting because games like they're, they're such a lexicon of reference that a lot of game, like really successful games are built upon. So I I guess like Lovecraftian monsters getting folded into like Pathfinder and D and D and then kind of repurposed for that, like high fantasy setting, which is like a very, different kind of thrill than like the abject terror that Lovecraft had that was rooted in in a lot of ways, like the, the unknown being bigotry as well. Um, yes. There, there yes. are, there are people that are showing that games have are a really effective platform to critique that. And also to, um, as, as I said before, with games being an empathy maker, um, like really letting you step into other people's shoes. And that includes showing very viscerally, like how other people are affected by these things, like holding up a mirror, even to like the community and why it's accessible to certain people and not to others. Like I like some of Lovecraft's writing, but I also know that he's basically writing about me when I, when I read those books as, as a black male bodied person. But I'm way more interested in playing a Call of Cthulhu game that's using like the tools that like Harlem Unbound is going to like fold in because it's approaching like cosmic horror and Lovecraftian horror from the perspective of the people that Lovecraft was afraid of. Yes. And that's yeah, that's why I really loved uh, getting to work on Call of Cthulhu. I did a lot of pieces for that and and kind of exactly what Jabari was saying. I, I loved that they they took it and kind of flipped it on its head. And I feel like Lovecraft would probably be turning over in his grave, but that's that's fine. It's I, I love that. I love that they made it different. They made it so that everyone can enjoy it. And no one has to feel uncomfortable enjoying, you know, the the, the, the horror that the game makes. Yeah interesting also talking about the the idea of discomfort in games because i i actually really like being uncomfortable <laughs> with my game within <laughs> like but like making a, a really safe space to do that like we we afford that same i guess objective to novels and to film and even like we're starting to do that with video games and comics and just like television like all of those mediums of, of entertainment get to be uncomfortable 
but that's a way younger conversation for role-playing games and video games, I think, but a very necessary one. Yeah, I I would say that role-playing games in general is just now starting to have that conversation. If I look back at, say, White Wolf publishing back in the 90s, I feel like they did a lot to try and be you know, inclusive. Like they referenced all the PCs as she and, and that kind of thing. But they were, you know, they were an upstart type company. Whereas just now the big established companies are finally getting there and starting to say, look, we can we can reimagine some of the horrors that were written, like H.P. Lovecraftian stuff or some of the uh, ancient fantasy stuff reimagine that in a new context and repackage it in a way that invites more people to the table and maybe lets that, you know, moment of, of discomfort happen, but in a, in a way that is constructive and allows people to grow from it. I think, I think it's a question of like, who's actually driving the conversation, you know? I mean, Chris Spivey, the writer of Harlem Unbound, he's also a black man. And so he's going to come at like Lovecraftian hard from a very different point of view. And it's going to be, I don't, I don't know if that's exactly like generalizing that discomfort as much, but it is, it is adding new wrinkles. And there, there is a question with any medium of um, who are you allowing to be like the makers of content in something and who gets to control the narratives of what you're making. So when you get when you invite people to do that for a for an interactive medium, uh, I think that's a really really powerful place to get people to really understand where others are coming from. And sometimes it's not safe, <laughs> but but the conversation sure. afterward that's being facilitated can be. I think one thing too that was eye opening for me was like coming from the um, the female perspective was uh, you know growing up it was always like oh D and D's you know I, I knew a couple people and like high school middle school who played but it was kind of like no girls allowed like no you can't play with us so seeing like twitter and you know players like heather and and all sorts of critical role people too they're like no 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 lady players are everywhere and that was eye-opening to me i was like really this is this is pretty cool and actually there's a local game store here that we've been in contact with to maybe do like an in-person game because i think that's always really special and uh the dm is this like super awesome uh lady who's going to be running a session for us so it's just like wow that's the internet kind of helps broaden our minds and help us connect with like-minded people that like, I didn't know there were as many out there. Yeah. Um, uh, the gaming store here in Kansas city, they have a ladies night only where it's, it's ladies get in free. They get to play games for free. They get to, you know, organize games together. And it's a, it's a, it's a really cool thing. It's so awesome. That's cool to encourage that for sure. Cause like I had none of that growing up. I, Maybe, you know, there's always bad eggs, every community, every industry, even the art industry, you know, you're always going to find the people who want to gatekeep, but no, it's modern day social media. I think kind of, I mean, there's always negatives, but it helps obliterate that a bit and helps show people like, oh no, there are people just like me everywhere who really like this super weird thing. Absolutely. I, this actually, this also reminds me of earlier, like, I actually do think that there have been a lot of like really challenging games that have been showing many different perspectives for at least like the past two decades, but they are like those sensibilities are creeping into the much more popular 
designs and properties like Pathfinder, the way that it's treating like different types of player races as I guess like D&D would use. Like they're, they're using the word ancestry and it's because there's an awareness of like how charged races as a concept. Right. And how problematic that can be in like fantasy literature. So there is there is like this push to be a lot more conscious on one hand while also creating like all of these different spaces for different experiences. Right. And a lot of that, I don't think comes like definitely saying ancestry in the product is coming from the manufacturer, but I think a lot of the spaces that we as players and as game, you know, game masters are making, they're all self-created. And then the studios look and say, Oh, there's a huge community over here. And they're telling me that I've done something wrong. I can correct my behavior now that they've organized and put together their thoughts in a, in a cogent way that I can say, oh, okay, yeah, I can work with that. I have ways to improve now. One thing, since I have both of you on here, it would be wrong for me to not ask this question. How does someone get into the line of work that you're in? Like, how does somebody even begin to put their art into the gaming space? Oh, man, it's... It's, there, yeah, there isn't really one answer because every like everyone I know in this huge art industry, especially with tabletop games, everyone has a different story uh, in a different way that, that they got involved. I know for me, I attended a convention called Spectrum Fantastic Art Live in Kansas City, Missouri. And they well, had that's my that's my that's my town. That's where really? I'm at. Yes, no I'm, I'm in KC. Yeah. Oh, no, wait. I'm actually going to be there at the show again next April. They're teaming up with Planet Comic Con, so we should, like, hang out. That'd be Heck, cool. yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah, totally. But, um, oh, yeah, so so Spectrum, <laughs> this was, like, many years ago before they combined with any big show, just kind of like a little little art show where the art community could kind of just have tables and sell their work. But they had a lot of big portfolio review art directors who were there doing reviews for people. So um, I try, I made sure to get meetings with Pathfinder, uh, another company I've, I've done a, a book cover for, Orbit Books. That was like a career goal. And then Fantasy Flight Games, uh, Zoe Robinson. And meeting with Zoe and doing this portfolio review, she sent me an email. Sure enough, like maybe three weeks later and was like, Hey, I really liked your stuff. And would you like to do some work for us? So I think putting myself out there and physically making an effort to go to this convention, I didn't have a table or anything. I was just like the super, you know, nervous. Oh, sure. Recent college grad with my portfolio tucked under my arm, uh, went and, you know, got these reviews and I would, seriously emphasize in-person networking really no matter which art industry you want to be in or even if you're you know you want to handle other parts of game design think uh you know these art directors and these big higher-ups at these companies they get like thousands of emails a day uh cold call emails so if you meet them in person shake their hand have a genuine conversation with them it's it you kind of solidify a connection that they're going to remember and Every single game I've ever worked on has always been from someone I knew, either, you know, meeting the art director in person or another friend who's like, hey, you know, for example, like Hyra Studios, I did some work for their game Paladins, which is kind of like Overwatch's competitor, which <laughs> I'm like a huge Overwatch geek. So I feel <laughs> a little bad about that. But it was a friend who said, hey, I have a few paintings I need done and you seem like a good fit. Would you like to, you know, come work with us for this? So it's. Just making real connections with people, I think, is so huge. I definitely agree with like meeting people in person, not only because it helps you stick in someone's mind when you have good interactions with them in person, versus like a good email that's like well drafted and such. Like 
totally good to have that kind of digital rapport, but it's different from having an in-person interaction with someone, but also like just showing early genuine interest in like what you're trying to make art for. That's part of why with games, like I've been designing games as well in order to help with my illustration work so I can really show that I understand like the context under which my artwork is going to exist and also show like if I'm doing something stylistically that's different from most of the market, like that I I can see, I can kind of demonstrate how that's still applicable to a similar product. It's really important when developing your own like visual style and such to pursue what you're genuinely interested in, Mm. even though that can be like very, very tough in some ways, like that's been pretty difficult for me, but that's also led to a lot more work that I felt really like creatively fulfilled with and also led to like relationships, not just professional, but like friendships in both like game design and illustration that are very heartfelt that I, that I really value. Um, and on a personal note, like I, I do try to, like, it's impossible to like give equal attention and energy to everyone, but like, I really do try to like, um, treat those circles as like personal circles. Um, and that, that keeps me, um, a little bit more, I guess, like gracious than if I'm just kind of like trying to storm through and be like, Oh yeah, like all of this is just like just work. Like I'm really excited by the people that I'm either doing illustrations for or like working on like game design with, like I'm really excited about like the things that they're doing and their interests and like the lessons that I'm going to learn from them. And I try to show that because that enthusiasm really leads to people wanting you to be involved with them creatively. That is so important too. I was totally going to say like that exact same thing because when I, when I started doing professional work actually for fantasy flight games, a lot of people, they bring their cards up. Gen Con signed a lot of the, you know, the board game cards that I did. And a lot of people comment like, well, these aren't monsters though. And that's because I started off kind of a generalist, uh, just mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm just going to paint anything. Anyone, someone wants me to paint, that's fine. And that was a good way to get my foot in the door. But kind of like Jabari was saying, finding what specifically really interests me was creatures, monsters, anything that freaked people out. <laughs> so I focused on that and I actually took a break from client work for, I think, like four or five months and made this whole new portfolio that was all sci-fi monsters and fantasy dragons and beasts and stuff. And and honestly, that portfolio is what got me all like it's just everything exploded as far as work is concerned. And, you know, every job that comes my way, I I definitely make sure it lines up with the stuff I'd like to do. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, taking on some work that you're less than thrilled with to start out, but definitely make sure you, you hone in on that specific thing that just makes you so excited about what you do and, and pursue the crap out of that. <laughs> That's some, I, I, I love all of that advice. Cause I think that a lot of people think they have to take any job because they're just trying to get started. And there might be some of that. You have to be a little hungry maybe to get started. But I think that people should not get, should not have despair thinking that they're going to get stuck doing something they hate. If they just know what they love doing, they can pursue that. Definitely. Yeah. There's, ooh, I mean, like, that's, that's a whole other, like, labyrinthine conversation. But I, it's, <laughs> so, it's so important to, to make sure to start, like, setting those those boundaries and also like with with 
setting kind of like those professional boundaries of like what is a healthy job to take on and what's a job that's interesting to you like realizing like not only like the amount of other really amazing talented people that you're going to be working alongside and in competition with um are going through the same thing but also the people that you're working for are gonna have like some of like those similar struggles and like you know have lives in some ways it's good to like kind of ground yourself um when you're interacting with like art directors or editors and understand like they're juggling a million different things like, <laughs> oh right yeah yeah there's there's so much empathy to be had there you know a game developer or an executive they all have people they love and care about they all have family troubles and 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 gains and they all have uh stresses you know so like some of the same pain points you have they have just from a different source yeah and understand I, I think like understanding that Right. Sure. Yeah. I, and uh, we've probably edited out whenever people listen, but I will say that both uh, Crystal and Jabari have been very gracious with us as we've had some technical issues during this recording. <laughs> and that that comes from that empathy of, well, I've been there. I've 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 struggled, too. And, you know, let's all just, you know, keep a keep a good attitude about us while we, uh, you know, work our way through it. Oh yeah. I, I stream on Twitch every Friday night and I feel like every week it's like, is this going to work? Cross our fingers. Let's just hit the button and go. <laughs> Let me tell you about it. Oh yeah. Um, I was curious about from, you know, we talk a lot about being prepared for Gen Con from our side of the fence. Oh yes. Wow. What's that like from your side? I mean, you know, you know, like that first year when it's, Hey, I'm going to be in the artist alley. Oh boy, I better get I better get printing here. I better get making some art. I better get making some uh, pads. I better, uh, you, you know, what is what is your prep process like, and when does it start? How how early do you start before Gen Con hits? Oh my goodness, um, it is one of our top shows of the year. So it's I want to say it's absolute madness, but it's it's fun madness. It's good madness. Uh, we start pretty much the moment we get accepted. Uh, which is usually around the winter time. I plan out my schedule every year. You know, every Gen Con, we've had a lot of return customers now that we've had our second year in the art show this year. So we get a lot of people come back and they're like, okay, what new work do you got? Uh, so we have to make sure we plan out that work and make sure we're delivering art that's going to resonate with people at that specific show. And since Gen Con is so specific and arguably the most fun show we do, that's yay. for this one, I wanted to um, start and complete the painting, the Kraken Hunter, which is that big sea Leviathan piece about to devour that little, <laughs> the little uh, 17th century warship. So I basically started that painting. So I'm doing the art, you know, on top of everything, we're getting everything ordered as far as like our display is concerned. Cause we like to have a really interactive fun display we never just throw a black tablecloth on there oh it was super colorful and super out there it's popping thank you thank you yeah we like to uh, i focus on branding pretty heavily about you know kind of same we were saying earlier following your passions i think branding is huge finding your passions and then making that a recognizable brand that other people can find you at shows so we have like you know, red dragon scale tablecloth. And we have, we change up the colors every year. We have all of our prints have to kind of stand up on their own, but they have to be elevated. So we had to find and hunt down some things that, you know, we could take with us because we drive from Denver area. So it, it's about two days drive each way, like 20 Ooh. to 25 hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so you got like four days of driving and my husband, who's kind of like the 
co-operator of my art business, you know, he's got to get the time off and fight his coworkers. Like, no, I need that weekend. <laughs> and it's, it's absolute madness. Uh, a lot of my friends still go who are attendees and they're kind of like, oh yeah, I, I made sure to get a good backpack. And I'm just like, we got an oil change. We got this, <laughs> we got that. Like I, I show them my to-do list and they're all just like, oh my goodness. Um, the convention life is, is very stressful and it's very high energy, but it's so worth it. I mean, in Gen Con, yeah, I'm not just saying this, but Gen Con has our, our favorite attendees. Everyone is always so respectful and just so appreciative of the art because, you know, someone also who, you know, grew up with even just books and book covers, like the art is what brings that to life and even more so tabletop games. So having people who've played Pathfinder come up and like, I just wanted to shake your hand and, and thank you for, you know, helping my team and I like really live this, this adventure, you that know, stuff so cool. like that, these huge moments and just, you know, the crowd is great. You know, we met Heather, like that's a lot of attendees are just, just really good people. And uh, so it's, it's our best show of the year. So we like to make sure we bring our, our absolute best with the displays and stuff. So yeah, it's I've um, I've heard from some other artists that it is the show of the year that lets them be artists the rest of the year. <laughs> yes. So, you know, as our listeners listen, this is a great place to really support the community. I know next year I need to make sure you save me like a triple X untamed so I can buy <laughs> that up. Oh, you bet. Um, we're actually looking into some glow in the dark options for our shirts next year. What? Um, yeah, our, we have this this version of our book that's called the UV Collector's Edition. And this is what I think made our Kickstarter just completely blow up out of the water. It was our $50,000 stretch goal for the book. And we were like, we need to come up with something just never been seen before. Insanity crazy. And I had this this old shirt that was like a Jurassic Park shirt, right? And it had the T-Rex, but the skeleton glowed in the dark underneath it. So we ended up working with our printer to see if they could even do this. And sure enough, we have this version of our book where every creature, there's a UV skeleton that's in yes. this the top of the art. And we're going to yes. have like prints of that. So next year is going to be a whole different animal for the art show for us. But that is awesome. awesome. That is great. That is great. <laughs> that's cool. We had um, we ended up actually meeting over 100 backers in person, too, because we launched our Kickstarter at Gen Con. Like the moment Gen Con doors opened, we hit launch. We thought it'd be fun to do it as sort of like a little launch party and a countdown. And uh, we kind of forgot how many Gen Con attendees were our backers. So we had people coming up and they're like, do you have the UV test proofs? Do you have them? So <laughs> we actually had them on hand with a big UV light. So yes. it was so cool getting to see people react to that in person. So Gen Con, yes, definitely an awesome place to go, like support creators and the people who, you know, not only are bringing to life your favorite huge games like D&D, Pathfinder and Magic the Gathering, but also, you know, people like me who are kind of making our own crazy, weird projects out there. It's it's great. Yeah, I actually am remembering that like some of you showing that and I didn't realize that the book was going to have so many more threaded through. Sorry, I'm just <laughs> I'm just having like mental epiphanies on this and like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that oh. is really cool. This is a lot of fun coming up with that. A lot of people were like, that's going to, I've had people tell me to my face in the art industry, like that's going to be really cheesy and kitschy. And I don't know if you should do that, but uh, we got the test prints in hand and it is the coolest damn thing I've ever seen. In a yeah. Book. I mean, if, if it's, if it's done well, it's not going to be cheesy at all. And it sounds like it was pretty awesome. 
Oh, yeah. And I, I've studied creature anatomy, like real world anatomy. I studied under uh, Tara Whitlatch, who she did a lot of the creature art for all the Star Wars films. So she's oh. like crazy good. And so all the skeletons are anatomically like 100% believable. Um, I even have labeled versions where I've labeled every bone. I, I get pretty in there with the anatomy. So I hope it tips the scale beyond cheesy and more just like, no, this is really awesome though. Oh yeah. Yeah. Once you start being anatomically accurate, then that becomes like, Oh no, when you strike the animal here, you break this bone and now (laughs) it cripples in this way. Oh man, that's, that's going to be really cool. Thanks. Well, awesome. I've had you guys uh, for like over an hour and a half now with all of our technical difficulties, and I super appreciate you guys being so giving with your time. Starting with you, Jabari, uh, kind of help people find you. What What are some ways that they can get a hold of you and, and see your art and, and see the, the games that you're working on and, and that kind of thing? Absolutely. So you can find my artwork at jmwillustration.com, and you can find my game design work at lunarveil.press, L-U-N-A-R-V-E-I-L.press. There's only a dire situation, the Epistolary game announced there. Folks, we're definitely going to link all this in the show notes. So both for uh, Jabari and Crystal, all their stuff's going to be in the show notes. It's funny to see even you two talked a little bit during the prep about how different angles and different approaches. And then even looking at your art, it's just it's <laughs> so awesome. Yeah. And, and just so we, we're covering all bases here, Crystal, please, how do people get a hold of you? How do they find your work? Of course. Uh, my personal like portfolio website is crystalsully.com, kind of like Sully from Monsters, Inc. And my book website is untamedbeasts.com that uh, we do have pre-orders open right now for another 30 days or so. So super excited to, you know, broadcast that, have that out there. That's pretty much also my Twitter handle, you know, at Crystal Sully, all that fun stuff. And there's going to be a lot of new art coming up too, because I, starting last week, am now taking a mentorship class with uh, Todd Lockwood. And if, you know, you guys like old school D&D fans, he created Tiamat. He created all the the dragon colors and designed all the original D&D dragons. So really excited to have some new work come out of that excellent oh my gosh yeah i would be pumped if i were you too yeah, no pressure right None. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly well everyone at home thanks again for listening as always have fun and play well may all your roles be crit Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by me, David Gillespie, with music provided by Taylor Guillory. Our web presence is managed by Amy Nelson. And if you like our style, please leave a review for us on iTunes. It's the best way to help people find us. Most importantly, though, feel welcome to connect with us on Twitter, our Facebook group, Discord server, our Friday night Twitch streams, and our website, all under the name High Shelf Gaming. We really look forward to talking and playing games with you. And while you're in that tool, we can't hear you. It's not until you say okay and come out of it. Oh my goodness. Okay, how about now? Is that better? Hey, that is excellent. Very good. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's so clear. Yay. Crystal clear, even. Oh, oh man.